Today we're going to get back into our study that, that we've begun the year with called the New Rules of Resolution. We are looking at how we can change the way that we change. We don't just want to change. We, we all want to change, especially at the new year. And even though it's still February, I believe God still has some change that he wants to enact in our lives. Uh, with this, not January is not the only month for change. But we don't just want to change. We want to change the way that we change because we all know what it's like to change for three days or for three weeks. And we have these surface changes. We have these skin-deep changes. But we want to learn how God has enabled us to have deep change that lasts, that carries out throughout our lives. So we've been studying this one passage of scripture over this five-week series, this one little passage, two verses. It comes from the New Testament book of Colossians. And here in this New Testament book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul is writing uh, to a group that is uh, being affected by heresy, by false teaching. They've got people telling them things that are false, that are not true. And, And we see all throughout the history of the church, the last 2,000 years, there are false teachers who rise up and try to lead God's people astray. And so the God's word warns us about these false teachers, and we need to heed these warnings. And so we found from this passage, from these two verses in Colossians chapter 2, we found five implications, or what we're calling five facts that change the way that we change. So today we're looking at fact number four that is going to bring lasting change into our lives. So if you're taking notes, go ahead and put down fact number four. This might be my favorite fact in the entire series, it's probably the most fun one that I, that I got to put together, and it's definitely the most appropriate one for Super Bowl Sunday, which, by the way, go Seahawks. Just got to get that out of the way. Had to be said, right? Had to be said. If you don't know me, um, I was born in Seattle, Washington. I lived there until I was 15 years old. Uh, I started watching the Seahawks when I was five. My dad will tell you that they made me watch one game when I was five, and I haven't missed one since. It's a big day for me, all right? Let me enjoy it. Uh, so... Tears of joy, baby. Tears of joy. That's right. You know, I'm not above crying tears of joy either. That's right. I've been, I'm, I'm 33 years old and not seen one single one of my uh, Seattle professional sports franchises has won a championship in my lifetime. I was born in 1980. The last championship was 1979. So if we win tonight, I probably will be crying. I ain't even going to lie. That's all good. I ain't afraid to say it. All right. So fact number four that changes the way that we change is this. It's not a competition. It's a calling. It's not a competition. It's a calling. The spiritual life that God has called you to, that that God has created for you, that he has made available for you and for me, is not a competition, but rather it is a calling. I want to set some people free today with that statement because I believe so often the enemy gets us caught up in pursuing a spiritual life of competition. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, our, our core passage. I'm going to ask Samantha to go ahead and put it up on the screen. I want you to read it along with me, or if you're really brave, you can quote it with me. But in Colossians 2, starting in verse 6, it says, So then, just as you receive... Well, let me stop. We're all going to say it out loud. Don't just read it on the screen. We're all going to say it with our mouth so you, you can pick up the rhythm. All right, and Bianca knows it too, so I know she's quoting it with me. That's what's up. Even in her Cowboys jersey, we're, we're mutual... Spirit. Anyway, so verse 6, so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, just as you were taught, 
and overflowing with thankfulness. One more time, verse 6 again. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, just as you were taught, and and overflowing with thankfulness. Praise God. All right, verse 8 goes on to say this. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive. We'll talk about that phrase a little bit later on. That no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. I don't know if you've noticed, but the basic principles of this world, this world system, thrives on competition. I don't know if you've ever seen Honey Boo Boo. I don't know if you've ever seen Dance Moms. I don't know if you've ever seen... Toddlers and tiaras. This world system thrives on competition to ridiculous, crazy degrees. I don't know if you saw last year the interview that Oprah Winfrey did with Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong, obviously, this, this incredible cyclist who won seven Tour de France titles, and then it came out that he did it all basically by cheating through drugs and, and doping through using steroids. And so Oprah sits down with him a year ago, and she asks him a very direct question. She says, Lance, do you think it's possible to win seven Tour de France titles, to be the greatest cyclist in the world as you once were? Do you think it's possible to do that without doping? And Lance Armstrong said, No. I don't think that it is. He said, the greatest cyclists in the world, all the elite cyclists, everybody who competes at this level, every single one of them is cheating. It's not possible to beat hundreds of men who are cheating if you're not cheating yourself. For him, it was just as necessary to shoot something into his bloodstream as it was to eat right, as it was to consume water, as it was to pump air into his bicycle tires. Now... I'm not an elite-level cyclist. In fact, I don't think I've been on a bike since I was like 14. I'm not really qualified to assess the truth of that statement. But it surmises, it encapsulates the spirit of competition that can get so out of hand in our culture. For the most part today, I'm not going to be talking about sports. I'm so thankful for great competition in sports and in school and in businesses. I believe that competition, that competitive spirit can drive us to try our best, to work our hardest, to discover things within us that we did not know were there. Competition is not in and of itself bad. I'm very much a competitive person myself. I have to kind of hold down my competitiveness at times because if I'm not careful, if I let the real me get out, nobody's going to follow me as a pastor. I will destroy my testimony. I'm the guy who, who was interning at a church to be, learn to become a pastor and went out and paid tackle football and got so mad at one of the kids I was playing with that I punched him in the face while I was an intern to be a pastor. Okay, there, there, there is something wrong with me. I, I'm not completely well. I'm not completely healthy. I get a little too caught up in things from time to time. That's why Dwindle's going to be crying tonight. But anyway, uh, I can get a little carried away with my competitiveness, so I have to guard that. But I definitely relate to the idea of getting caught up in competition. So what I'm saying 
is this, the, the same thing, the same spirit that can drive an athlete to great heights, that can cause an athlete to discover the greatness that God has placed inside of them or, or the great, the competitiveness competitiveness that can cause you to be a success in your chosen field that can drive you on to new things and to new heights that same competitive spirit can be one of the most damaging corrosive things to our spirituality can be the thing that destroys us time and time again and that's this when you develop a spirit of competition the more competitive you are the more that you like to win the more that the culture of competition is a danger to you. This culture is what creates in us this, uh, okay, I have an iPhone, but you got a newer iPhone. And I didn't even know I didn't like my iPhone until I saw your iPhone. But now that I saw your iPhone, I can't even stand the thought of keeping my iPhone any longer. Right? That's the culture of competitiveness that I'm talking about, where we're comparing ourselves to the people around us. I don't think it's anything new. I don't think it's started in our generation, but I do believe that perhaps the things that are unique to our culture and our generation cause this to be even more damaging. Because now, we don't take pictures of ourselves and our family to pass on a legacy to, to make sure that we've recorded this moment in time for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to see and enjoy. Now we take pictures of ourselves to post it to social media to see how many likes we can get. Or how many people can comment on our picture, on our Instagram, on our Facebook, or our tweet. This is the world that we now live in. It's a culture of competition. The spirit of competition in our relationship with God is the enemy of our souls. Paul was confronting a truth, a false truth, excuse me, known as Gnosticism. It was this false idea, and, and Gnosticism was a syncretistic belief system where, where we took a little of this and a little of that, but ultimately it was a great pursuit of what they would call knowledge. And the more knowledge you obtained, the more you learned about this faith and this faith and this faith and this faith, the closer to God they believed that you became. So Paul says this once again in verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. The spirit of competition can take us captive. There's another truth that you'll want to write down today. The death of contentment is comparison. The death of contentment is comparison. Check that statement against your own life. Check that statement against how you feel about your work situation, your family situation, your bank account situation, your relationship situation. The death of contentment is comparison because when we see what someone else has, that they have it better than us, that they have it greater than us, that they have it easier than us, that they have it more comfortable than us, that they have it healthier than us, when we compare ourselves to the people around us, we lose contentment in the things that God has given us. Competition takes you captive in your walk with Jesus. It's hollow, it's empty, and it kills your sense of contentment for what God has given you. The same thing that can make a great athlete great can make a Christian captive through the spirit of competition and comparison. Because most of our misery, and, and 
check this against your life as well. Most of my misery does not actually come from the status of my life situation. Most of my misery comes when I compare my life situation to what I think it should be, and what I think it should be is not defined by what God has promised me or what God has created me for. What I think it should be is defined by what I see around me. And so most of my misery ultimately comes from comparison to the families, to the people, to the pastors, to the churches that I look around and see. And I believe all of us can get sucked into this spirit of comparison and competition. It's hollow, it's deceptive, and it takes God's people captive so many times. I have some friends named Tim and Ellie Bentley. I think we actually have a picture of them together, if you'd go ahead and put that up for us. This is Tim and Ellie. Tim and Ellie are from South Mississippi. I had the privilege of meeting them last year at a conference that that I was blessed to be brought in to speak uh, about churches using and harnessing the power of social media. And so I gave this little talk, and and there was about 30 people in my breakout session, and Tim was one of the people there. And and we got to connect afterwards, and we went out to lunch, and we hung out and swapped phone numbers, and, and he really picked my brain on some things. But Tim, last February, was raising money because God had placed a calling on his life and on Ellie's life to leave the security of the United States and move to Eastern Europe to a nation called Macedonia, just north of Greece. Because there's a block, this whole Eastern block of nations over there has no concept of youth ministry. There are very, very few churches, and none of those churches have any outreach to teenagers. And so God placed a calling on Tim and Ellie to leave everything that they have, everything that they know, every ounce of comfort and familiarity, and move to Macedonia and begin to start a movement for churches to raise up youth pastors to go after young people. I love those two people right there. I believe in the calling on their life. And so they get to Macedonia. They moved, I believe, in October. It was either late September, early October. And they get to Macedonia and they get to work. And they had raised their funds and they got just enough to go. But they had not yet raised funds for, for the things that they would actually need when they got there. And so when they got there, one of the challenges they faced is they did not have a vehicle. And so very soon, the winter time struck, and Tim posted this picture on the Facebook page that I helped him to get started. Go ahead and put this picture up. Uh, I don't know how well you can see it. This is a snowstorm that hit Macedonia. You can see some footprints in the snow. Those are Tim and Ellie's footprints. You see, the way that they did ministry when they first got to Macedonia was one step at a time, one door at a time. They would go door to door and knock on doors and tell families about Christ and seek out Where are the teenagers in this neighborhood? We're starting something over here. We want you to come and be a part of it. And so when they did not have a vehicle, they did not let the snowstorm stop them from accomplishing what God had called them to. They went out and beat down the doors and praise God, the Mississippi District Youth Ministries of the Assemblies of God just bought them a vehicle and they've got one now. And they're provided for And I'm so grateful for that. But Tim and Ellie could have been sucked into a culture of comparison. They could have got to Macedonia and looked at their life and looked at the lives of all their friends, all the people they're still connected to, and said, how come we're serving God in a way that nobody we know is, and we don't even have a stinking car? And they could have gotten so depressed and so discontent in their life situation. They could have even just compared themselves, not even to the people around them, just to the life that they left behind. They could have simply compared their life to who they once were but a few months ago and got sucked 
to discouragement and discontentment, but that is not what they did. They went over there and they seized with joy and celebration the doors that God had opened for them to walk in their calling. And they very literally walked in that calling until God provided something better. What I want to challenge you with today, church, is that the spiritual life that God has for you, the thing he has created for you, the thing that Jesus died for you to receive is not a spirit of competition, but it is an incredible calling. And when we begin to see that not everyone is called to the same thing, that the things that God has put in me are not the things that he has put in you, and the things that God has put in the person next to you are not in the same things that he has put in the person behind you, we're going to quit comparing ourselves and looking around and wishing we were like that person and wishing we had this person's gift and wishing we could do this, 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 and this and begin to see God's got something for me, and I'm going to go out and walk out the thing that he put me on this earth for. I don't care what anybody else is doing. It is really quiet in here. I'm preaching better than your amen in today. And I've never said that. Pastor Jason used to say that all the time. But I'm saying that is a word from God for somebody today. There's one question I get more than any other when I sit down and talk to people. When people join the church or we go out, many times people will ask this question. And sometimes it's worded differently. But it, it amounts to this. How do I know my calling? Sometimes they'll say it like this. How do I know what God wants me to do? Sometimes they'll say it like this, how do I know what God's will is for my life? But essentially, all those questions hinge on the same concept of, I need to discover my calling. What does God have for me? And it's a great question for all of us to wrestle with. If you've never wrestled with that question, I would challenge you to begin asking God, God, what do you have for me? See, a calling can keep you out of trouble. You're so focused on the future that God has for you that you won't forfeit that future on the altar of temporary enjoyment and pleasure. If you want your young person, parents, if you want your teenager to stay sexually pure, I don't believe the greatest way to keep your young person out of bed with another young person is to tell them about the dangers of STDs and the dangers of teen pregnancy. I think it's important that they know those dangers, and I'm not telling you not to tell them. But the greatest way to keep your child from getting into that situation, the greatest way to get, keep your young person pure before the Lord is to help them to come face-to-face with the calling of God on their life. Because when they realize that God has something greater for them, it's not that they're worried about the dangers of this or that. It's that God's called me to a place of purity. He's called me to a place of holiness. And I'm not going to forfeit my calling for any five minutes of pleasure. See, a calling can protect us. It can give us focus. It can give us drive and purpose and keep us moving towards what God has for us. But the world, the world does not live by calling. The world lives by competition. I want the things that the people around me have. And that competition begins to seep into the church. It begins to seep into our spirit. It begins to affect us if we don't confront it head on and realize I need to get this spirit of competition eradicated from my life. And it is not a one moment where we pull that weed. It is constantly tending that garden of our heart and going in and pulling that root back out and pulling it back out and pulling it back out because discontentment and comparison comes for every believer. And it comes again and again and again. You see, the truth is the spirit of competition is dangerous on both extremes. 
Because on one extreme, when we fall into the spirit of competition, we see that, that this person is doing this thing. For me, here's what it is. I wish I could lead worship, and I can't sing for nothing. I'm the guy who, when I sing, my wife tells me to shut up. That's me, okay? Every time. Try to sing to her, try to be romantic, and she's just like, no. This is not working, baby. Uh, don't have that gift. As much as I wish I had that gift, as much as I have the passion, God did not gift me with the ability to back up the passion that he placed in my heart. It is not there. And we can look around and we see all these gifts that other people have. So-and-so's funnier than I am. So-and-so is more outgoing than I am. So-and-so has a better ability to articulate the truths of Scripture than I do. So-and-so does this and does that, and they're better. And we look around and we see all this stuff and we get discontent. Because we're not that. Because we're not them. Or there's the opposite extreme. When we are better than them. And we do have it more together than they do. And when that happens, one of two things happens. We either fall into pride and think, dang, I'm pretty good. Man, I didn't realize how much better I was than so-and-so. And we get into pride and arrogance, which God will never bless the pride. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Or in that moment, we get complacent. I don't need to push any harder. I'm already at the finish line. I've already accomplished so much. I'm just going to take it easy. And instead of focusing on the calling that God has on my life and pursuing what he has for me to do today, I fall back into complacency and say, I'm just going to hit cruise control for a while because I'm so much further ahead of anybody. They're not even going to know. Comparison is deadly on both ends. So either way you look at it, the spirit of competition can take us captive. And it's very corruptive to our souls. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, amazing passage of scripture here. Paul says this, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, he's writing from a prison which would eventually lead him to have his head cut off for the glory of God. He's writing to the Ephesians church. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. I love this because Paul's writing from a prison cell about calling. Normally when we think of calling, we think of all the great things that God has for us. I'm going to accomplish this. I'm going to lead this person to Christ. I'm going to walk in this gift. I'm going to release this CD. I'm going to build this church. I'm going to advance the cause in this way. Most of the time, being a prisoner is not on our list. It's not on mine. Look at my list of goals and things that I want God to do for me that I believe he's called me to. Being a prisoner for the Lord is not on my list. And yet Paul, in this situation where he could begin to question how did I get myself into this? Where did I go wrong? How did I make this mistake? How come this apostle and this apostle is free right now? How come they get to travel? How come they get to tell people about Jesus? And I'm stuck here, locked in a room, and I can't leave, and I've got a burning passion to tell people about Jesus. Instead of that discontent, Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Even in prison, Paul understands calling, but what's incredible is what comes next. Verse 2, he says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. See, most of the time when I think of calling and when you think of calling, we think of calling as we are called to D-O something. We're called to do. But when the Apostle Paul spoke of calling, he did not speak of the D-O. He spoke of the B-E. Here's who you need to be. God has called you to be 
a person of this. And when we discover the character that God has called us to obtain, when we discover the person God has called us to be rather than the things God has called us to do, the do will flow out of the be. But if we just simply go out and do and don't focus on the one that God has called us to be, we will never accomplish anything for the kingdom of God. Because you cannot do what you have not become. You can't do it. You can't lead people to a place that you've never been of yourself. So the primary goal of calling is not about something God wants me to do, but primarily about who God wants me to be. It's not a competition. It's a calling. So let's go back to Colossians chapter 2. I want to read a little further in this passage than we've done so far. We're going to go to the very next two verses, which will, I believe, shed some light And how the same grace that saved us is the grace that is going to keep us saved and is going to carry us through into everything that God has for us. Verse 9 says this, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And every Christian said, In Christ all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. The fullness of the Father, the fullness of the Holy Spirit was concentrated in Jesus. All of his grace, all of his forgiveness, all of his goodness, all of his greatness, every attribute that we ascribe to God, everything that he owns and possesses was concentrated in the body of Jesus Christ. That is the essence of the reason why we call ourselves Christians. We get this, but then check out verse 10 because we stop at verse 9 far too often. And you, look at the person next to you say he's talking to you. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who's the head over every power and authority. We all believe verse 9. We all believe that Jesus had it all, that Jesus paid it all, that Jesus was it all, that Jesus did it all. But we forget that it wasn't just that Jesus accompanied the, body, the Godhead in bodily form. But then he said, now I'm giving you my fullness. It didn't stop with him. He passed it on to you. For some of you, that's like mind-blowing to think that the full power of God dwells within you. But if you've received the salvation of Jesus Christ, that is the truth of Scripture. If verse 9 is true, then verse 10 must be true. There's not even a break in sentence. This is one complete thought. Paul is saying God concentrated his entire power in the person of Jesus Christ. And now that power of Jesus Christ, the fullness of who he is, has been passed on to his believers. It's an incredible, incredible truth. He says, let me tell you how complete Jesus is, how full Jesus is. There's no part of God's love, his power, his grace, his goodness that is not expressed in Jesus. And now that's all been given to you, if you believe. This is the death blow to the spirit of competition. This is where it ends right here. This is where uh, we begin to set apart our lives for Christ. Because if I have fullness in Christ... If I have everything that Jesus died for in me, if I'm full of love, if I'm full of joy, if I'm full of affirmation, if I'm full of strength and full of grace and full of Jesus, if I'm full of him and he's full of God, let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters, this morning. What do I have to prove to anybody? If I'm full of the power of God living in me and you're full of the power of God living in you, what do we have to prove to the people around us? Nothing. And the spirit of competition is fueled by this desire to prove our worth, to prove our value, to prove that we're something. But God says, I've given you all the approval already. You've got the approval from the only one 
who matters in this culture of keeping up with Kim and Courtney and Chloe and, and this Snapchat culture of I'm going to spend 10 seconds, seconds on this thing and I've got to convince you that I'm cool in 10 seconds or the speed dating culture where I get three minutes with you to overcome the fact you just spent ten, th- uh, three minutes with 10 other dudes and I've got to make my mark. I've got to prove myself in this three minutes. That culture fades away when you realize that the fullness of God lives in you. True freedom in Christ comes the moment you realize you have nothing to prove to anyone. Because in Christ, God fully approves of you. I'm going to say that one more time. True freedom in Christ comes the moment you realize that you have nothing to prove to anyone. Because in Christ, God fully approves of you. I want to see some Christians set free. I want to see the people of God set free from the spirit of competition. I want to see City Church set free from looking around, from feeling like we're supposed to do this or supposed to do that, or from people in the church looking at the people on the stage and thinking, I need to be more like this person. I want you to be like the person God has called you to be. And be free from the spirit of competition. Colossians 2.10 says, says, I've been given fullness in Christ. So if I've been given fullness in Christ and you don't like me, guess what? Your loss, right? That sounds really cocky and arrogant. It's not cocky and arrogant because I don't live for your approval. Is I'm not supposed to. I'm supposed to live for the approval of one. And when I have his approval, I don't need yours. And you don't need mine. We can quit living for the approval of the people around us. When you know you're called, you no longer play for the applause of anyone or anything but your heavenly father who loved you before you got the raise, before you got freed from that sin, who loved you when you were broke, when you were still in your sexual dysfunction, who loved you when you were still lost, who loved you when you still had the problem, before you got the victory. He loved you before you did anything to earn it, before you did anything to receive it, before you even conceived of it or understood it. He loved you even back then. So to declare spiritual bankruptcy and declare that I'm nothing without him is great. And a lot of Christians get that. But we can't stop there. We must understand that through him, I have all things. And to declare not just once, but day after day after day, this is the beginning of true freedom because his fullness lives in me. Very quickly, wrapping up, I want to share with you a parable, and I'm just going to summarize this parable. I wanted to read you the whole thing, but, but for time's sake, I'm going to try to break it down very quickly. There's a, a parable that really sums up this idea of calling and walking in the calling that we have. It's found in Matthew chapter 24. I believe it starts in verse 14. Matthew 24, Jesus tells the parable that we know is the parable of the talents. And in the parable of the talents, let me set it up for you very quickly. Most of you may be familiar. The, the, there's a master. There's a, a money manager. And the money manager has three servants, and he's going to go away on a long journey. And so he sets, calls his three servants in. He says, I'm going to delegate some responsibility to you. I'm going to delegate some resources to you. I need you to make me some money while I'm gone. So he gives the first servant five talents, which a, a talent was basically equal to around one year's wages. So in what, $250,000, we'll just say. That's five talents. Maybe more for your wage, maybe a little less. But, but he gives them a very large sum of money. The next servant he calls in. He doesn't give him the same. He doesn't give him equal. He gives the second servant two talents. He says, hey, I want you to go out and make me some money. Then he calls in the third servant. Then he gives the third servant one talent. And then he goes on a journey. After a long period of time, maybe many years, he returns. 
and he calls his servants in to give an account. And as he calls his servants in to give an account, he goes to the first man who he gave five talents. He said, I gave you five talents before I left. What have you done with it? And so the guy says, well, you took the five talents that you gave me, and I went out and I worked it, and I invested it, and I busted it, and here, I've earned you five more. I now have ten talents. The guy says, the master says, verse 21, right here, the master replies, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Verse 22, I'm just going to read you three verses right here in the center of this passage. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, only two more? The other dude gave me five extra talents. How come you're only giving me two? I expect every one of you to accomplish the same things for me. That's what the master said, right? No. If you know the story, he says the exact same thing to the servant who brought him two more talents that he said to the servant that brought him five more. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come and partake, come and share in your master's happiness. He did not compare them based off of this young man brought me five extra talents, but this servant only brought me two. He compared them based upon what they did with what they were given. And you are not given the same talent and the same calling and the same opportunities of anyone else in this world. Your opportunities, your talent, your giftings are absolutely unique. And so the measure of what you do with them is not the measure of what someone else has done with theirs. The measure is, what have you done with what God has given you? Of course, there's a third servant. And the third servant went out and he buried his talent in the backyard. And he calls in the third servant. He says, I gave you one talent. What have you done with it? And he says, well, I know that you were a hard man, and you you reap where you did not sow, and you harvest where you did not plant. And so I wanted to make sure that I didn't screw it up. So here's your one talent. I took good care of it. You know what the master calls that servant? He calls him wicked. He calls him lazy. And at the very end of the passage, in verse 30, he calls him worthless. Why was he worthless? Because he only had one talent? Because he had less talent than the people around him? No. He was worthless because he was not faithful with what God had given him. You see, it's not about accomplishing what anybody else has accomplished. It's not about living up to the standard of anyone else that we see. It's simply about finding out what has God given me and what does he want me to do with what he's given me? What is the opportunity that he's placed in my life? Who are the lost people that he's placed in my world that he wants me to speak to? What is the job that he's placed in my hand and what can I do to be faithful with what he's given me? And that's where we understand it's not about competition. It's about calling. Can I tell you this morning, church, you are called to something. And I believe that most of us in this room are called to more than what we're living out right now. God has prepared great works for us to accomplish. He has prepared great things for us to do for his kingdom. And I'm not telling you this to condemn you. I'm telling you this to free you. Quit trying to live up to the works of anybody else and get alone with God and find out what has he given you. What's he placed in your hand? If you would, I want you to stand to your feet. I want to pray over you. I want to speak some life over you as we wrap up our message today.